With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us here on the program this, uh, I said evening, but it's actually the afternoon. We had to delay the show again this week. It's been a, a rough week for me, got a lot on my plate, but I do appreciate you bearing with me and I appreciate that you have chosen to make this show a part of your daily or weekly routine. However you're watching us, whether you're watching us live, whether you're watching some of the pre-recorded segments, we really appreciate you making us a part of your day because we do believe that there's a lot to talk about in the state of Alabama, a lot that is worth talking about, and we're going to go ahead and get to that right now. In local news, we do have three Alabama school systems that plan to vaccinate children without parental consent. Yes, you heard that right. We're actually having school systems now within the state of Alabama, yes, Ruby Red, Alabama, that are saying that we will go ahead and vaccinate minors without getting their parents' permission first. And this is taking place in Madison, Birmingham, and Huntsville. They are all hosting these COVID vaccine, uh, I don't even know what you call them, I guess clinics for the COVID vaccine. And here's the thing, I'm not against the COVID vaccine. I think that they are actually, it's, it's impressive how much success that they've had and how we were able to roll these things out within just a year of this virus coming out. So I, I'm not against the vaccine. I've advised members of my own family to get the vaccine. I went and visited with my grandfather just yesterday. The man is in his 80s. He absolutely needed to get the vaccine and has. And if he had asked me my opinion beforehand, I would have told him, yes, absolutely get the vaccine. This thing is very dangerous for people in your age demographic, especially since you have type 2 diabetes. And so he had all the risk factors. And yes, absolutely take the vaccine if you are in that boat. But this announcement comes from the school systems there in Madison, Birmingham, and Huntsville. This particular one, we'll just look at Huntsville's first. Let's go ahead and, and look at their announcement. And there's a, quite a bit of material to go through in this one. But the important part here is at the very bottom where you'll see there it says, students under the age of 14 must have a parent or guardian present to receive the vaccine. Everyone receiving the vaccine must present a form of legal identification, including a driver's license, passport, non driver ID or birth certificate. Well, that's just super racist because they just hate brown and, and black people. And that's why they're saying you have to have a form of legal ID to be able to get the vaccine. I mean, I, I that that's just putting their racism on display because we know that anytime anyone ever asks anyone to provide ID of any sort, then they are necessarily racist because that's what the Democrats tell us all the time when it comes to voting, that if you're, if you're for voter ID, then you must be for racism. But you know, that sidebar, putting that to the uh, back burner for a second here. If they're saying students under the age of 14 must have a parent or guardian present to receive the vaccine, wouldn't that imply that people over the age of vaccine would then necessarily not 
I mean, that's what the rules that we just read are, are saying. And so you don't actually have to have a parent's permission to be able to get this vaccine if you are over the age of 14, the tender age of 14, where we know nobody between the ages of 14 and 18 ever make bad decisions and really don't need to consult their parents for anything. They're, they're basically full-grown adults by the age of 14. This is just absolute lunacy. And what I don't understand is, how is this even legal? Now, you know that when it comes to me, I tend to be very libertarian on just about everything. I have very libertarian leanings. When, when you make a freedom argument, I'm usually all ears. The exception to that, though, is children, because they're not of the age of majority yet. And so while I 100% for autonomy when it comes to the individual, if you're under a certain age, and we'll get to this in a little bit, I think you probably don't need to take the vaccine, not because the vaccine is, is bad per se, just because you're at low risk and it's something that you're not necessarily going to need. And I know that I probably just got kicked off of YouTube for saying that, but that's my opinion. I, I'm just saying that based on what I've, I've read and the things that I've done when it comes to the vaccine, if you're under a certain age, you probably are not at very high risk for from dying for this thing or getting complications or needing hospitalizations. And, you know, you probably don't need the vaccine. And that's a choice I believe that you ought to be able to make. But not when you're 14 years old. You're a minor at that point. You're not equipped with the skills and the knowledge that you need to be able to do that. Because I know this is a dirty little secret that people don't like to talk about, but uh, sometimes 14-year-olds make mistakes. And sometimes they are not really mature enough to make good decisions. Now, you could also say that of 18-year-olds, but the point is, at least at that point in your stage in development, we believe that you're responsible enough to go out, get a job, you know, be able to make all the decisions that an adult needs to do to survive. At 14, pretty much everybody agrees that you're not at that stage in your life yet where you're fully equipped to be able to do that. And if you want just one example of that, Let's look at the state laws on the books here in Alabama. Regulation of tattooing, branding, and body piercing prohibits anybody from performing a tattoo, brand, or body piercing on a minor unless prior written informed consent is obtained from the minor's parent or legal guardian. And this is Alabama Code 22117A. So if our state has a law against any minor under the age of 18, being able to get a body piercing, being able to get a tattoo, being able to brand themselves in some way. And that's just cosmetic. Yes, it involves a needle. Yes, it involves breaking the skin when we're talking about a piercing or a tattoo. But at the end of the day, really the only thing that does is change how you look. It's not a medical procedure. It doesn't, you know, alter your metabolism or your blood pressure or something like that. How is it that that is illegal? But a 14-year-old can go to a school and get a highly experimental, again, I'm pro-vaccine, but it is an experimental vaccine. And there's a lot that we don't know about it yet just because it's new. Not because it's bad, just because it's new and there might be bad things that we haven't discovered about it. That's called science, gang. But anyway, how is it that we have laws that would prevent a 14-year-old from going out and getting a tattoo by himself, but we believe that he's perfectly mature enough and capable of making his own medical decisions? That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. How is there not, and genuinely, any of my friends that are lawyers here in the Yellowhammer State, how is it possible that the state of Alabama has that as illegal, 
but it's perfectly legal for these school systems to go behind the parents' back and provide minors with these vaccines and allow them to get it without the consent of their parents. I do not understand that at all. There's even, at the federal level, a ban on cigarettes, smokeless tobacco, in other words, chewing tobacco, vaping under the age of 21. And of course, that's the drinking age as well. Now, I think that's dumb. I don't think that we should have these half measures. When you reach the age of majority, you should reach the age of majority and everything should be available to you. Uh, this idea that you're a pseudo adult where you're 18 and you can make some decisions and you can join the army, but you can't have a beer. And I say this is somebody that's never drank any alcohol in his life. So it's not just because I'm pro-alcohol. But I don't understand these half measures that we're doing when it comes to that. But we're saying, th think about the ridiculous of this, this. We're saying you're not even allowed to have a beer with your friends until you're 21 years old, but you can totally inject yourself with something that we have way less experience with as a species figuring out exactly what it does to you, beer versus the COVID-19 vaccine, that you're okay to make that decision when you're just 14 years old. And the thing that I think is even more ridiculous about this is this is coming right on the hills of the CDC, bringing up the fact that, yeah, there are some complications coming along with these viruses that they're noticing and, and with the vaccines to the viruses that we didn't know about ahead of time. And by the way, I know YouTube is going to censor me on this. They're probably, heck, for all I know, they've already kicked me off the air on this episode. I've had episodes removed when I talk about this stuff. I, I would not at all be surprised if that is something that is coming down the pike. But I promise, I'm citing my sources. You can look at it in my video description. I have all of the sources there, and I'm going to show you the graphics that I pulled directly from the CDC's website. So this is not Caleb's opinion. This is pulling directly from them. Take a look at this graphic. Well, if it'll come up. There we go. Um, take a look at this graphic. This is reported from CNBC, and they are quoting directly from the Centers for Disease Control. A CDC safety group said there's a, quote, likely association between a rare heart inflammatory condition in adolescents and young adults, mostly after they've received their second COVID-19 vaccine shot, citing the most recent data available. There have been more than 1,200 cases of mitocarditis and pedicarditis, mostly in people 30 and under, who received Pfizer or Moderna's COVID vaccine. According to the series of side presentations published Wednesday for a meeting of the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, mitocarditis is the inflammation of the heart muscle, while perigarditis is the inflammation of the membrane surrounding the heart. Quote, clinical presentation of mitocarditis cases following the vaccination have been distinct occurring most often within one week after dose two with chest pain as the most common presentation, said Dr. Grace Lee, who chairs the committee's safety group. CDC officials are gathering more data to fully understand the potential risk and how to manage it and whether they are long-term, there are long-term issues, she said. So again, that's not Caleb's opinion. That's the CDC. They're saying that the data that they have seen, the data that they have looked at, is showing that there is a substantial risk, at least much more so than they originally believed, and we'll get into the actual numbers and actual data and, and show the actual level of risk later, because it's actually not huge, but it, it is, you know, there. Uh, this is the data that the CDC 
put out that that report was based on, you can see there, this is, you'll see two columns. They have the, the administration of doses, but the ones that I've highlighted there, those two columns, are how much they expected and how much they actually saw with the mitocarditis or pericarditis after the second dose of these two vaccines. Now you'll notice it's elevated for both groups. So in females, they were expecting anywhere from zero to two. It was instead 19 uh, for women ages 12 to 17, but in men, it was way more. So it's about 200 times the amount that they were expecting in some of these age groups. And so you're looking at men between the ages of 12 and 17, 18 to 24 and 25 to 29, there is a substantial rise in the cases versus the ones that they were expecting. And, and one thing you need to understand about this, when they were talking about they were expecting, they were expecting that because that's what would normally be the case. So what would normally happen in this situation is you would have people with this condition, but that's to be expected because some people just have this condition. And yet after that second dose, they realized that actually a whole lot of people that didn't have it beforehand and way more than should be expected in this particular age group had these two conditions. And so the CDC is discussing this and, and they show a direct correlation between heart inflammation and vaccine. And they said, as you saw the quote in the, C, the CNBC report, that that connection is very likely based on all of the recently available data. And the thing that is so frustrating about all of this is because ultimately this is the group of people that are the, at the lowest risk from anything bad happening to them with COVID-19. And I'm not even necessarily just talking about death. Death is obviously the most important one, but I'm talking about even hospitalization. And so injecting yourself with a vaccine that for this age group, there's a pretty, you know, a, a risk there. I wouldn't say a huge risk because the numbers actually aren't very big. But there is a risk there of you developing a heart condition that if you just left yourself alone and, you know, might get the virus, might not. But even if you did, there's virtually no risk to somebody under the age of 30, unless you have another comorbidity, something like diabetes or you're a cancer patient or something like that. There's virtually no risk to you if you don't take it. And there is some risk to you if you do take it. So the question then becomes, it, it becomes a cost-benefit analysis, right? We need to figure out whether or not the risk of the uh, pericarditis or mitocarditis is going to be more, is going to be worse than the risk if you didn't get the vaccine and just winged it. So here's what we're going to do. We'll go ahead and look at some numbers to do a side-by-side -side comparison. You can see here, this is COVID-19 vaccine males ages 12 to 29. So this is the age group that we're talking about, the ones that were at higher risk for these side effects. And you can see here, uh, males aged 12 to 29 vaccinated, that is 10 million, just over 10 million. So a little bit over, but not by a whole lot. And then you look at vaccinated males in this age group that were diagnosed with mitocarditis or pericarditis, ages 12 to 29, well, that's only 406, which means there is a 0.004% chance if you have taken this vaccine that you're going to develop this condition. So it's not that big. That's about one in 25,000. Those are pretty good odds. And I say this to say, I don't think that 
if you do get the vaccine, that you're at some kind of extremely high risk for developing this condition, at least not based on the data we have. If so, it would be something that develops a long ways after the vaccine is administered. And there's no data to support that because of how new these vaccines are. And so I'm just going where the data leads. And according to the CDC, based on the numbers that they've collected, the risk for developing this condition is very low. But that's not the question. The question is not, is the risk low? The question is, is the risk lower than something terrible happening to me if I do not get the vaccine? So let's look at some statistics on COVID-19 for males under the age of 30. And remember, unlike the other one, this is including people under the age of 12 as well. And so this is actually expanding that age group a little bit in our sample size, just because that was the only stat that I could find. So of all the people in this country, between the age of zero and 29 that happen to also be of the male persuasion. That is 64.76 million people. The deaths in that same age group from zero to 29 is 1,656. So if you do a little quick math, you will find that that is 0.02% or one in 50,000. So when you compare those two side by side, because remember it was 0.004% of you getting this condition if you got the vaccine, it's literally double. So again, this isn't my opinions. The, these things are what they are. Do not blame me. I'm just giving you the CDC's data. According to their own data, if you get the vaccine, you are twice as likely to get one of these conditions as you are to die from COVID-19 if you don't get the vaccine. The risk is doubled. Now, I should say that the CDC still recommends that you get the, they, they're saying that the, uh, the risk outweighs the reward, the reward outweighs the risk. I don't see how anyone that knows math would say that because I'm looking at it and I'm like, no, it's, it's, the risk is literally double if you take the vaccine of getting this condition than you would be if you don't get it. And that's because people in this age group just don't have this problem. Look, I think, frankly, it's a miracle that the side effects from these vaccines that were developed very quickly seem to primarily affect young people. I tend to think of that as a good thing because those are the people that are at the lowest risk. I see that as a benefit. I see that as extremely good fortune. But people on the left are saying, no, no, everybody across the board should get vaccinated. Well, not according to this. Not according to the CDC's own findings. And by the way, this is just the side effects that we know about. There may be others. And I'm not trying to scare anybody to not getting the vaccine. If you've got a couple of comorbidities, maybe the vaccine is the right choice for you, even if you are under the age of 30. I don't know that for sure. I'm not trying to make everybody's decisions on their own. But the idea that these schools are trying to scare these kids into getting these things without their parents' consent, especially in the wake of the CDC announcing that people in this very age group are at larger risk for the side effects to this vaccine is incredibly irresponsible. But even deeper than that, even more than the obvious evil of them experimenting on kids and trying to go around even more than the risk that we could talk about. What's more important is a growing sentiment within the public education system that the schools just know better for your kids than the parents do. And sadly, this is something that is really not new. 
but it's always been there and it seems to be growing and gaining a lot of traction. It seems to be far more commonplace than it used to be. Because, I mean, if you have studied anything about history, you know that, that Woodrow Wilson, for example, I mean, this is a guy that was president 100 years ago. Back when he was president at Princeton, his university, he was the president of a university before he was president of the country. Back when he was at Princeton, he actually said that his goal was to make men as unlike their fathers as possible. He was trying to basically pull them out of their family unit and make them into completely different people. That was his stated goal. Now, by contrast, you have teachers that are not trying to teach kids what to think. They're trying to teach them how to think. But that wasn't Woodrow Wilson's philosophy. He was trying to make them into political activists. He was trying to make them into what he thought they ought to be instead of what their parents thought they ought to be. And this has been something that the Democrats have been doing for a long time now. You know, Hillary Clinton had that book, It, it Takes a Village. Basically, the, the community should be raising kids as opposed to the families, that it should be up to the community, the government schools, so on and so forth that should be the ones that are actually raising children as opposed to individual parents, mothers, and fathers raising their kids. Bill Nye said that if you are going to be a climate denier or somebody that denies evolution, then you should have your kids taken away from you because you shouldn't be allowed to teach your kids that kind of stuff. Uh, We have people like Black Lives Matter that said they want to destroy the nuclear family and they prefer, and this is on their official website, they prefer having a community raise them, to to have a more community-based idea of parenting, that our kids belong to us as opposed to belonging to their parents. So this has been Democrat credo for a while, but now we're seeing it happening more and more and more and happening, uh, frankly, much faster with individual teachers espousing essentially the same ideas. And this has been happening a lot over the past week. This is just in the past week. Uh, For example, we had one teacher a special ed teacher from Iowa named Megan Ginna, who complains that she can't teach her kids critical race theory. Uh, this is a video from her TikTok. Today is the first time our country has recognized Juneteenth as a national holiday, and yet I'm getting ready to go back to school in the fall, and my governor has put into place some ridiculous legislation that many governors across the country have put into place, such as I can't teach anything divisive, I can't teach critical race theory, and I can't teach about racial equity. This is at all public schools, colleges, and universities. So, teachers, in the past, we've been activists. After the show of last year, we really need to stand up and do what's right for our kids right now. So, this is a call to action, teachers. We gotta stand up and fight for our kids because this is bull. We can't lie to them. See, you hear what she's saying in there? We have to stand up for our kids. We have to fight for our kids. Basically, she's saying that we know better than the parents, we know better than the employers that employ us at the state. We know what's better for the kids than they do. And so we need to just ignore them and teach critical race theory. You see, because again, they believe that they can raise your children and they can educate your children better than you can. They know what's best for their kids and, and up to the, it's up to them. And essentially, your kids don't really belong to you. They belong to us. And so it's up to us to teach them the right things because they're obviously 
not getting that at home. And you'll notice that she ended that with saying, look, in the past, teachers have always been activists. It's up to us to do the right things for our kids. It's up to us to fight for our kids. Look, if the parents wanted critical race theory taught, now critical race theory is utter garbage. I've done several episodes on that. We've gone into the background of it and, and why it's incorrect. But without getting off into the weeds into all of that, she is essentially asserting that she, as an educator, understands that critical race theory is good for your kids and we need to give it to them whether your parents or the state wants it or not. It's not up to you, it's up to them. The teachers need to be the activists. And what I also find really funny, and I don't have time to delve into it, but that same teacher has a, a litany of videos that have come out about her saying insane radical stuff like this. And one of them is she says, no, critical race theory, it's not about politics, it's just about the truth, which is hilarious because even the founders of critical race theory at Harvard, the, the people that actually came up with the idea in their book, Introduction to Critical Race Theory, literally said there is an activist branch of it. And here's that same person that was saying, no, 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 critical race theory is not at all political. It's just teaching correct history, saying, no, no, we need to teach critical race theory because we're activists. So you're admitting that it's political. On one video, you're like, no, it's not political at all. That's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to teach accurate history. But then you say, no, we're activists. Therefore, we need to teach critical race theory. Okay, well, you can't have it both ways. You got to be one or the other. You can't say, well, it's not political, but we need to teach it because we're activists and we need the right political outcomes. All right, well, pick a lane there. But anyway, and then that's not even the worst one. I, there was another example of a teacher in the state of California who, uh, her name's Alyssa Pirro. She teaches high school at San Marcos High in California, and she does not, and flat out says it, does not want parents telling her how to teach. Let's watch that to talk to me about their profession and their opinion on their profession, I would love to hear that. I know very little about anything else in the world other than education, okay? However, if your parent wants to come talk to me about how I'm not doing a good enough job in distance learning based on what you need as an individual, just dare them to come at me because I'm so sick to my stomach of parents trying to tell educators how to do their job. I have never once gone to a doctor's appointment and tried to tell my medical health provider how to treat me. You know why? Because I know nothing about that. I didn't get my degree in medicine. There's several reasons why her analogy there is, is severely flawed. But before we dive into that, can you believe the arrogance on that person? I dare parents to come and tell me that I'm not giving their kid exactly what they need in the classroom. Again, as I said at the beginning of this segment, they really believe, they genuinely think this, that they can teach your children better than you can. That they will give the kids what they need because you're not going to do it as their parent. They are better. They, they, I'm an educator. You know, it's that kind of mentality. It really is. Uh, they believe that since they have a degree in education and you don't, then you must be an idiot. Which, by the way, I find hilarious because I've known a lot of education majors and some of them are great people and some of them, I'm surprised they have sense to get in out of the rain. I Remember, I hung out around a lot of the ag ed majors at Auburn. So I was around the education building constantly. I wasn't an education major myself, but I was around them quite a bit. 
And uh, some of them are great folks. Some of them are Fruit Loops, just like anything else. You, you got some weird people in some of those departments. You got some great people in some of those departments. But the point is the idea that I have a degree in education. Therefore, no parent of any child can ever teach me about anything or even comment to me about anything regarding the education of their child. Um, don't you think that the kid you've had maybe for one or two semesters that you've probably learned something about how they learn. You probably understand a little bit about how they understand things and perceive the world. But don't you think the person that spent like the first 14, 15, 16, 17 years of their life with that child and taught them to like, you know, use a spoon might have a little bit better understanding of how that kid learns, or at the very least would have some valuable input that you might take into consideration not according to this person. Apparently, her mentality is just like, I have an education degree. You cannot possibly tell me anything I do not know about education. And she, she actually gives the analogy of it being like a doctor because she says she doesn't know anything about the medical degree. And she also doesn't know anything else about the world outside education, which, by the way, that part I totally buy. And unfortunately, that's true of a lot of educators. Uh, I think that they would be better served if they did know a little something about the outside word in conjunction with their degree in education. That's something that unfortunately is missing in a lot of our educators. But anyway, not to get off on that tangent, they really believe that now that they have a degree in education, that anybody that does not have a degree in education cannot possibly contribute to their knowledge base. The arrogance is just, I mean, radiating off of her. Look, right now I have a degree in agricultural communication and broadcasting. Some of the most important valuable insights I've got into broadcasting were people that never went for to school for one day in any kind of broadcasting. Some of the smartest, most talented people I know in this field never had an education in broadcasting. I'm right now a master's student in theology. I learn things about Bible, the Bible all the time from people that have never had any formal Bible education. I'm not so arrogant, and I hope I never become this arrogant. If I am, somebody talk to me about that. Uh, but I hope I never become so arrogant that I believe the weight of my degree outweighs any knowledge or any kind of outside information that might be pertinent to me that someone else might have. But apparently that is the place that this teacher finds herself in. And ultimately, the thing that is important to remember here, and I think as a parent, I'm not a parent, of course, but a lot of you listening to this program are. The thing that's important to remember as a parent, if you were to encounter somebody making this argument, is to remind them that they are your employees. That is what a teacher is. They are a government-assigned assistant. The task of teaching children falls on the parents. It is your job to make sure that your child is educated, not the teacher's. Now, the teacher is a government-appointed assistant to that task, and there's a lot of fantastic teachers. Remember. I'm not against public education. It put bread on my table my entire life. My father was a teacher for 27 years. I was around teachers. I worked there over the summer. I am as engrossed in the education system as anybody could be that isn't actually a teacher. I, I did teach very, very briefly and decided it wasn't for me, and that's fine. So I have been a teacher, but I'm not going to you know, compare that to somebody that's been in the business 20 years. I'm not saying that I have that level of expertise, but I'm saying for somebody that isn't like in that world, I have about as much experience with education as anyone. 
that still wouldn't make me right or wrong, even if I had no experience in it. But the point is, I do. And I'll tell you right now, all the good teachers that I knew, the ones that were really good in the classroom, that their students liked them and their students really learned things from them, they were ones that loved parental input. My dad was one of them. Even the parents he found annoying, and there were some of those. He respected the fact that they cared enough about their kids to want to be involved in their kids' education. And when they gave him advice, a lot of the times he took it. Or he at least took it under consideration, if nothing else. And when you're looking at this person just spouting off like this, they have to remember that they work for you. They're your assistant, not the other way around. You are the one that is the expert on your kid. You may not be an expert on education, but you are an expert in your kid. Probably more so than any other person other than your other parent, your, your spouse or whatever. And so it just amazes me the, the level of arrogance coming off of this person because I've seen firsthand what good teachers look like and I can tell you that ain't it. People that believe that they've already arrived, that they've already learned as much as they can, and nobody that doesn't have a diploma in the same field as they can, they, they can't possibly learn anything from a person of such lowly status of not having an education diploma. That's a person that can't be reasoned with, and it's also a person that has completely thrown out any form of critical thinking. But what this all boils down to, whether you're talking about the schools trying to go around the parents to be able to vaccinate them, the schools trying to slip critical race theory in there because they believe it's what's good for your kids and since they're not going to get it at home, they have to put it in because they know better than your kids for you. Or somebody like this that says they actually don't want parents' input in education, that you should just turn your kids over to the state and then they will fill their minds with whatever they deem those kids need to know and you need to shut up. All of those boil down to the same problem. This is at the core of all of that. And that is, it is one more inst uh, institutional attack on the institution that God put in place, the family. It is the most basic building block of the society, the good society, the civil society. The family was always at the foundation of all of that. That at the end of the day, it didn't really matter who was in office. It didn't really matter what the political leanings were at the time because ultimately the power resided most in the individual and in the family. And they're trying to get rid of that. They don't like the fact that families have all this autonomy. They don't like the fact that you get to teach your kids whatever you want. They don't like the fact that your kids wind up growing up with similar belief systems that you have. They hate that. And that's why they're trying to undermine it. This is just a few of the iterations of what ultimately has been the attack on the nuclear family. And I believe it's an attack that is devised directly from the pits of hell. I mean, if you were the devil, there are two institutions you should focus just about all of your time on. Getting rid of the church, getting rid of the family. And he has been very active in both of these pursuits. But to be honest, even though he, he's been very successful in a lot of his attacks on the church, but I think he's been more successful on the family because ultimately 
I think the devil knows that the church is not going away. Like Jesus even said it, and he has yet to be proven wrong. And so it makes sense that he would spend most of his effort trying to break down the family. And if you stop thinking about families as being individual units where there is a, a father that is accountable to God, that is the head of the household, there is a mother that is accountable both to God and her husband, and she is supposed to bring up her, her children with compassion and with a reverence for God. If you break down that unit, the church is going to be pretty injured anyway, and you're going to be able to bring down the whole country just by breaking down those individual allegiances. And this is just the latest iteration of that same attack. So we have a great interview for you today. Andrew Sorrell, a representative from the state of Alabama from Muscle Shoals, has announced that he is running for the state auditor. So we're going to get to that interview here in just a second. But before we do, because you guys know that I love supporting local businesses. I like talking about people and I like doing business with people that, uh, you know, we're in it for the right reasons and want to actually help people and serve. And this is a business like that Headmaster Barbershop, which by the way, is down here on the Atlanta Highway. You know, I'm on Faulkner's campus when I'm in studio. And so I'm like two minutes from this place. If you'll go, you know where that auto zone is right across uh, from the Walmart on Atlanta Highway. It's like right behind that auto zone. So it's kind of tucked behind there. But if you go down that road, you will see Headmaster Barbershop. There's a big red sign on the building. And I like a good barber. It's something that is is just kind of one of those little simple pleasures in life that I really appreciate. And I hate going to these dumb cookie cutter places, and I'm not going to name any of them, but you know the ones I'm talking about, the one where it seems like there's one on every street corner, a, a generic chain haircutting place. And I've gone there before, but I don't like it. And I've tried going to a few other places in Montgomery, but I've been irritated by the fact that I've been living here for two years now, and I have yet to find a good barber. But I finally did, and it's Headmaster barbershop so be sure to check them out freddie is open from 8 30 to 5 it's a little one chair kind of hole in the wall place but oh my gosh it is fantastic uh he's really good he gets you cut quick he gets people in and out kind of has to because he's got the one chair but he does a great job he actually used a straight razor on the back of my neck which i mean just looks and feels so much better than all these cookie cutter places that just like trim it up with a pair of electric uh trimmers and the prices are reasonable uh, it's actually cheaper than those cookie-cutter barbershop places. And that's another thing that I really like, because I love saving money. And another thing, and I know that my audience really like this, he has a big sign-up that says, guns are welcome as long as you keep them holstered. And so if you want to open carry in there, you can. Now, obviously, don't unholster it unless, you know, something happens. But yeah, I mean, this is a guy, great values, great family business, somebody that I want to support. I know you guys probably want to support. And if you really just want a great atmosphere and a Christian business, go by and see Freddie at Headmaster Barbershop. This is at 61 Marketplace, right across from the, the Jim and Nick's and the Walmart there on Atlanta Highway. So be sure to check him out and tell him Caleb Cockwood from Tactics sent you. I'm sure he'll get a kick out of that. That is Headmaster Barbershop. So we will take a quick break and we'll be back with that interview with Representative Andrew Sorrell in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And now for a reading from the Social Justice Warrior Bible with Pastor Gregory Post. Welcome, fellow spiritual travelers. I'm Gregory Post 
head pastor at the Eternal Living Word Transdenominational Church and Coffee House in Novato, California. And now it's time for yet another reading of the SJW Bible. Please help us fight the evils of capitalism by ordering your copy today. Standard copies are on sale now for only $120. Signed copies are now 25% off at only $300. Now let's go ahead and get into our reading, which will come from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, which states, For the kingdom of heaven is like a government-appointed land manager, who went, after his morning Starbucks run, to hire laborers for his trendy vineyard in Napa. When he agreed to give the laborers a living wage for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others playing hacky sack in the marketplace. And to those he said, You, go into the government-owned means of production also, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing but being sure to hire some minorities and gay people to meet his diversity quotas. In about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around just trying to find themselves in the universe, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because we get food stamps and government housing. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Now when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the project manager, Call the laborers and pay them their living wages, starting with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a living wage. And so, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received the same living wage as mandated by the state of California. When they received it, they grumbled at the federal land manager, saying, these who were hired last were only here for one hour, and all they did was smoke pot and listen to indie rock. Yet you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day's work and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. I'm just following the state of California's labor laws. We're mandated to pay a living wage, and we can't fire people just because they don't work. Take what the government has given you and go. After all, food and housing is a human right, whether you work or not. Besides, if you made more than him just because you worked harder, that would make you unequal, and all inequality is wrong. So the last shall be first, and the first shall be first too. You're all equally special. Wow, so inspiring. This has been another reading from the SJW Bible. And remember, the only truth that matters is your truth. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. As always, we are certainly glad to have you with us. If you'd like to like and subscribe, that certainly helps us fight the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. The next guest that is coming on the program now is one that I have actually never had on the program, Andrew Sorrell, who is the representative from District 3 in the Alabama House, and he just recently announced his candidacy. He is going to be running for the state auditor for the state of Alabama. So let's go ahead and welcome him on. Welcome him on. 
Thank you so much for being with us, Representative Sorrell. Hey, Caleb. Really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, always a pleasure to uh, pick the brain of some of our elected representatives, especially when they're seeking a higher office. And so without any further ado, I kind of wanted to get right to the heart of the matter. There are a lot of statewide offices, a lot of constitutional offices you could have chosen to run for. Why state auditor? Yeah, it's a really good question. And let me tell you what happened. Two years ago, a bill was introduced. My first year in the legislature, a bill was introduced to eliminate the state auditor's position completely. And what that forced me to do was to really analyze the position, study it, learn about it, and see, is this a position that we could legitimately get rid of? And the conclusion I came to was, no, absolutely not. I have to be opposed to that bill. I think it would be very unwise to eliminate the state auditor's position because it does really three very important things. The first thing that it does is it keeps track of all the state property worth $500 or more. There is $1.7 billion worth of property that the citizens of Alabama own. It's spread out over 176 different state agencies. That property all has to be audited annually. The second thing the auditor does is he appoints, he or she appoints a registrar in 66 of the 67 counties in Alabama. These are the people who register you to vote and perhaps even more importantly, keep the voter rolls clean. And finally, the state auditor serves on the board of adjustment. So the state of Alabama is a sovereign entity. You can't sue the state of Alabama. But if you do have a valid claim against the state or against one of its boards or agencies, you can file your claim with the board of adjustment and the state auditor has one of the votes and hears those cases quarterly. So after I studied the position a little bit, I thought, no, we, we cannot get rid of this position. It's too important for the people of Alabama. And, you know, you, you, need, you need somebody watching the taxpayer's money. I just think that's really important. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because that was actually going to be one of my next questions is they recently decided to at least look at getting rid of the state officer's uh, auditor's position. And I think that there are a lot of people, I'm not saying that you're one of them, but there are a lot of people in the state of Alabama that look at constitutional offices as just stepping stones to something bigger. And so I actually really appreciate the fact that it sounds like you've studied what the position does and the intricacies of it. And you're not just looking at it as a, uh, a resume builder for a higher office later, that that's something that you're actually interested in what the office does. Yeah, you know, when I ran for state state house, it was because I wanted to be a state representative. There were issues that I wanted to work on, and maybe we can talk about some of those today. Sure. But why I'm running for state auditor is because I want to be state auditor. People say, are you going to be as outspoken as Jim Ziegler was? Look, I'm running for state auditor because I want to do the job of state auditor. If I'm outspoken on other issues, that's secondary to doing the job well. I think, first of all, nobody cares about your opinion. If you're not doing your job well in Montgomery, then nobody really wants your opinion anyway, right? <laughs> Probably so. I know I would rank among those that if you're not doing your job, I'm not really concerned with what your opinions are on maybe social issues or whatever. I mean, not that those are invalid, but I do, I would a lot rather you do the job I elected you to do than, you know, spout off about that kind of stuff. Uh, I think sure. Jim Ziegler and does a good job of doing both, though, so I'm fine with that. I'm fine with it too. And as long as you're, as long as you take care of, you know, your, your actual responsibilities first, if you have extra time, you can travel a state and speak to different Republican clubs. You mm -hmm. can go on the radio and talk about issues that you think are important to the people of Alabama. You know, that's hundred percent. Okay. I have no problem with that, but I want to be very clear that I'm running for state auditor because I'm interested in the position and I, and I want to do that job. Well, one thing that I was going to ask you about, because even though typically we went to the Secretary of State, who, you know, right now that's that's John Merrill, 
uh, to ask about issues of voter integrity. It is true that some of the duties that are regard voter integrity do fall to the state off, uh, auditor in our state. And so I was wondering, since that has become such a hot button issue, what are some of the things that you would do as state auditor to try to make sure that the integrity of our elections is maintained? Yeah, you're right. People don't realize that the auditor and I think the treasurer even gets an appointment to for, for these registrar boards. And the first thing I would do is I would go to the conferences where the registrars meet annually. I think they get together down in Baldwin County somewhere and they do an annual conference. Mm -hmm. I think the state auditor needs to be in on that. He needs to be learning the same thing. If it's if if he's going to be appointing registrars, he needs to understand the registrar position, the intricacies of that. So I'm going to make it a point to go to all of those conferences myself. And secondarily, I'm just going to interview people and I'm going to ask them, what is your plan to keep the voter rolls clean? What is your plan to figure out who needs to be removed? If, as John Merrill says, if they moved away, passed away, or were put away, they need to be taken off the voter rolls. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that the people that I'm, that I'm appointing to registrar are, are going to be very, very serious about doing that job. And, and that's the thing too, uh, as far as voter fraud goes, you know, the, how widespread it is is a, a matter of great debate. But I think that even the person that contends that our voting system is, is very safe and very reliable would even have to admit that there are some issues occasionally, things that slip through the cracks when it comes to people being on the voter rolls that really shouldn't be. There are things slipping through the cracks, and I've already taken some steps to address these as a legislator. I supported a number of good election reform bills this year. I'll give you an example or two. Okay. One of them was, if you vote twice in Alabama, obviously that's illegal. But you know what wasn't illegal? Voting once in Georgia and once in Alabama. If you voted in two different states, that was not against the law in Alabama until hmm. this year. Chris Blackshear had a bill to fix that. And we know there were at least six individuals who did in 2018 vote in multiple states. So now whether or not it was intentional or not, we, we, you know, we don't really know. We could get into that. We'd have to go study these individuals to find out. But whether it was in, I don't know how you unintentionally vote in two different states. But no, right. nonetheless, that was an election law that we cleaned up. I'll tell you another one. We banned curbside voting. I don't think we need, we need uh, ballots going uh, out of precincts. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't trust like, here, fill your ballot out in the car and I'm going to carry it back in. Well, how do I know you're going to put it in the machine? How do I know you're not going to alter my ballot before it goes in the machine? You know, it's, it's not a good situation. And the argument against that was, well, you know, these, you know, the handicapped people, you know, I mean, they, they need to be able to just pull up and curbside vote. Well, first of all, handicapped people go to the front of the line already. And right. second, if you're handicapped, you can absentee vote in Alabama. We already have a process in place for that. We don't need to open up this thing where we're and go outside of a precinct and be walked back in by an election worker. We are opening Pandora's box. So that's just two examples of things that I've already done as a legislator to try to close some of those election loopholes in a state where, admittedly, I don't think we have as widespread a voter fraud as perhaps other areas of the country do. I think our elections are run very well here. But even here, there's things we can do to further clean them up. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think also there's less motive. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't, this isn't something we should focus on because I wouldn't waste my audience's time talking about it if I didn't think it was important. But in Alabama, there's less motive because we're not really a swing state. And so I, I think there's less reasons why somebody would, would try to trick the vote because it would be so hard to get the overwhelming majority to, to get it to swing the other direction. But, you know, it can happen. And one thing that I wanted to ask about, because I, I didn't want to, you know, go too far down this rabbit hole, 
But if you read the media and their reaction to the getting rid of curbside voting in Alabama, you would have thought that we enacted a million dollar poll tax the way that they overreacted to it. Like we, we, yes. were, we were basically <laughs> enacting Jim Crow, but a thousand times worse by saying, no, you cannot do the thing that we literally just invented last year. And that's what's so funny to me about the, the whole voter, uh, you know, tr trying to keep the, uh, the vote, voting rights current. I'm fine with us making some occasional uh, temporary measures that we put forward because of people scared of the COVID, COVID vaccine or the, the COVID virus. Uh, not scared of the vaccine. There might be some people afraid of that too. But people that were afraid of the virus, I understand enacting some temporary measures to make voting a little bit easier because of what was going on then. But now they act as though as though those temporary measures, if those measures that we just put in place last year aren't kept from now until the end of time, it's voter suppression. Oh, yeah, we had to endure a filibuster. Uh, every time we did an election bill, there was a filibuster in the House by the opposing party. And we had to end up cloturing every single election bill we passed this year. We had to cloture the vote just to stop debate because it would have gone on for forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, they would have wasted 24 hours of, of floor time on an issue that was going to be a party line vote. Anyway, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Look, I don't care if if your party is in power, winning the election, losing the election. We should all be for honest, fair, and free elections. That should right. have been a unanimous vote. No, I, I couldn't agree more, but uh, sort of transitioning topics here. I was recently doing a segment about Alabama's tax burden, and I was quite surprised to find that despite the fact that we are arguably the reddest state in the country, uh, by a couple of different measures. You can ma maybe make an argument for West Virginia, but Alabama's a very red state. Everybody knows that. Despite that, our tax burden, if you combine our sales tax and our income tax and compare that to other states, we're actually well above average. And so how would you, as the state auditor, make sure that those tax dollars are, are being spent well? Because, I mean, in my opinion, we're being s severely overtaxed in Alabama, and I know that our property tax is low, and that helps make up for it to some degree. But um, how would you make sure that our tax dollars are being well spent and, and serving the people of Alabama and that money is going where it needs to go? So currently, the duties of the state auditor are just to check up on the property, make sure the property isn't disappearing. So that is a very important duty. But what I would do is I would push for the Department of Public Examiners to be put back under the state auditor's office where I believe that it should be. And in fact, I carried that bill this year. I wasn't able to move it. But I had a piece of legislation that would do just that. And when most people think of auditing, that's what they think of. They think of someone going in and, hey, we're going to audit this county commission's books. We're going to make sure no money's disappearing and everything. That's what they think of. That's not the auditor right now. That's the Department of Public Examiner. I forgot that they had moved that, actually. So Yeah, they sure did. My, my bad. And, <laughs> I forgot about no, that. No, that's... That's no, and that's that is a very common misconception, but it's a misconception for a reason. It's because that's probably really the way that it should be. That's the way I would prefer that it to be. Um, besides that, I'm going to continue speaking out uh, against higher taxes. Now, when I was in the legislature, I voted against uh, not just the tax increases, but also the fee increases, because fee increases are usually just higher taxes disguised as fees. Right. We had a bill this year. We're going to add five dollar fee onto everyone's, uh, you know, boat, uh, you know, title. Uh, well, that's actually just another tax. So, you know, I voted no on that. Um, I sponsored bills to cut taxes. They, none of them went anywhere. None of my tax cut bills ever saw the light of day. I had a bill that would have gotten rid of the grocery tax. It would have phased out the state grocery tax over 20 years. I had a bill that would have eliminated the business personal property tax. Had another bill that would have eliminated the business 
um, personal property tax. Uh, so I sponsored at least three different tax cut bills. And uh, as auditor, I would continue to speak out that, you know, Alabama's tax burden, we, we like to say that we're the reddest state in the nation, but you know, our policies don't always align with that as closely as they should. Right. And sort of on the other side of that, speaking of your voting record, if I'm not mistaken, didn't I read somewhere that you were the only person that voted against the state's education budget for the past two years? So not just the education budget, I also voted against the, the uh, general fund budget. So Alabama has a bifurcated budget process. We have right. two different budgets. We have education and everything else. I voted against both of them, not because I'm against, you know, funding state troopers. I'm not against paying teachers. I'm not against any of those things. What right, I'm against. Andrew, why do you hate the children? Why, why would you... <laughs> right, exactly. That, that's, I'm no. sure you've heard that argument a thousand times when people are actually being serious about it. No, for sure. And there, there's a lot of different reasons that people can vote no on a bill. You know, you sure. don't get to vote no on individual pieces of a bill. I can't go in and say, well, I'm for the money for teachers, but I'm not for, for, for this expenditure. You know, right. it's yeah. it's all or none. But really, my no vote was 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 a protest vote because I was the only legislator to do it in the House or Senate. But I'm trying to make the point that we are growing the size and scope of our government every year. Even during a pandemic, we found a way to grow the size of government in Alabama at a rate of three to five percent annually. I campaigned as a small government conservative when I ran for the state legislature and I intend to vote like one. So I, after my first year in the House, I figured out what was happening. Hey, Republicans are growing government in Alabama. That's that's not what I'm for. As, as a small government conservative, I couldn't support that. So I did vote no on the budgets each of the last two years. Just out of curiosity, and, and I'm just asking for a frank opinion on your part, do you, do you actually, I assume, because you're moving to the state auditor's position, or at least trying to move to the state auditor's position, you believe that you could do more good there than you're currently doing in the House. Is there a reason for that? Do you feel like uh, you just can't make a difference as one of a voting body and you think you'd make a bigger difference as a constitutional officer? Like, What was the motivation behind that? Do you, do you think that maybe you could do more good in the House if you stayed there? Well, I could definitely do more good in the House if I stay. I don't mean more. I could do, I could continue to do good. I couldn't do more good. I think I can do more good in the auditor's office. Okay. But I, I did get some good done as a state legislator, and I still have 18 months left. I still have a whole other session left, plus a couple of special sessions likely later this year. Right. I was able to pass a civil asset forfeiture reform bill, pass it unanimously um, in committee and on the House floor. I even got the, um, the minority leader of the Democrats co-sponsored my bill. I worked very closely with Senator Arthur Orr on that. We ended up actually passing the Senate version of the bill, SB 210. I carried it in the House, both in committee and on the floor. Uh, governor signed that bill into law last week. A lot of good reforms. So I was very proud of that work. I, I've moved constitutional carry farther than anyone else in Alabama has ever been able to move it. I good got luck it passed with that. out. I've been trying for that one forever, and it, it we put it we bring it up every year, and it always fails. It just gets the goat. But anyway, Caleb, it's coming. It is coming. Listen, this year well, I, I got so. an eight to four. I got an eight to four vote in the public safety committee. It came out, shocked everyone. Um, but you know, those public safety committee members, um, I've I've been working on them for three years, and you know, some of them have just changed their mind. You know, we've had great discussions about it, and they slowly said, you know what, you're right. You shouldn't be able to charge somebody for what is their constitutional right. Exactly. And I was I was very pleased that, as far as I know, every Republican on that committee voted for my bill this year. And uh, next year, I believe you'll see that bill on the House floor. And I, I mean, just to be quite frank, I don't see a bunch of Republicans voting no on a gun bill in an election year. I, I think the bill will probably pass next year. So I have been successful in the House. I've really enjoyed it in the House. But I do think that keeping track of $1.7 billion worth of taxpayers' property 
that's an important job. I think I could do a lot of good in that position. Well, as somebody that tends to be a budget hawk, I really kind of want to get your idea on this, and, and maybe this will give us a little insight into how you would handle um, handle things in the future when it comes to this. Uh, what's your opinion on merging the two budgets? Because I, I think that there's good arguments on both sides of this. I tend to like the fact that they're separate and want to keep them separate, but would you be in favor of if there was a proposal for the Alabama – uh, budgets to be merged and so we would just have one general budget as opposed to a general budget and education budget yeah that's a real lightning rod issue you know yeah, if, really if you is. merge <laughs> if you merge the budgets then you know the 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 educators may say oh well they're trying to take money from education or you know the the prisons may say oh they're trying to take our prison money and give it to the teachers or what so it, everyone's suspicious if you ever start trying to merge the two budgets but would i vote for it yes because i think it's good government to vote for it the money needs to go to its its best and most efficient use. And if it's tied down in one budget, if you've got 80 million extra in one budget and you really need to have it in the other, you just can't spend it there. So you end up spending it on a second or third priority, whereas you could have it on a first tier priority in the other budget. Doesn't really make any sense. We're one of only three or four states that, that do bifurcate our budget process. And uh, I, I would definitely vote in favor of combining the two budgets. Okay, well, that's interesting to see where you stand. And I actually, like I said, come down on a different side of that issue, mostly just because I'm afraid that uh, the education budget would get completely swallowed by the general. Uh, but I, I understand the arguments for making it uh, a little bit more fluid. I, I genuinely understand that. But um, I, I like the fact that you at least had good rationale for your position on that. Um, so one other thing that I would like to ask uh when it comes to being able to uh spend our, our tax dollars effectively is there anything that you could do as state auditor i know that you you talked about the fact that that's um not really as much of what the state auditor does anymore um is there any way that you could uncover fraud or funds being used inefficiently as the auditor you know it, it would be difficult it really would i mean first of all you don't have the staff there's a staff of only eight or nine people in the auditor's office the budget has been sliced from 1.2 million down to 850,000. Just in the three years that I've been in the legislature, they've been continually slicing the budget for, for Jim Ziegler. They even took his parking spot away. And I think a yeah, lot of that you gotta was- You gotta be kidding me. They took Jim Ziegler's parking spot? They sure did. Yeah, they took his parking <laughs> spot because they, you know Jim Ziegler has been outspoken on issues that aren't necessarily quote in his lane. You know, the auditor, you know, typically doesn't come out and give an opinion on an I-10 toll bridge in Mobile, for instance. Right. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with him doing that. And I think that, you know, Alabama was probably 80-20 with him. The citizens of Alabama probably were 80-20 with him on that issue. So, oh, I would agree. But I do think that that impacted the, the, the budget funding for him. And I do think that, in, that that's the reason he no longer has a parking spot. I mean, just petty little things like that shouldn't happen in government. But they do. But to answer your question, am I going to be able to uncover large amounts of waste, fraud, and abuse? Uh, no, because there's no budget for that. There's Jim Ziegler literally told me, look, if we have a copier machine break or a flat tire, we're in trouble because we're not going to have the budget to pay for it. And that's how tight it is right now. So unless you're willing to put the Department of Public Examiners back under the auditor and properly fund the office, I don't think you're going to be able to find um, you know, that, that level of waste and fraud like they did in Mississippi. The state mm -hmm. auditor in Mississippi found millions of dollars that was being uh, stolen, I believe, and it brought that to light. And I, I don't think we're, we're going to be able to have that same level of success in Alabama with things set up the way that they are. Well, and that's kind of an example of one of the things of government that really hacks me off, Andrew, just to be perfectly honest. 
what they'll do is they'll they'll make a move like that that basically guts the budget and taking the Office of Public Examiners out from under the state auditor. And then a couple of years later, like, well, we might as well just get rid of the position because it's not doing anything. Well, of course it's not doing anything. You took away all its power. <laughs> right. But uh, I don't know. It's just it, it bothers me. And I think that that has been, frankly and unfortunately, a very effective way to make sure that any of the stuff that they're doing sort of under the table goes unnoticed. And it's not like the state of Alabama does not have a history of doing that. It was the state auditor that actually originally found out that Governor Bentley was moving money to help cover up his affair. You know, we have the history with Mike Hubbard in the House. And so, like, if there was any state that needed a state auditor that was watching these things, you would think it would be Alabama. Uh, I completely agree with you. I mean, it just looks bad for the government to come out and say, yeah, we want to get rid of the auditor's position. I mean, the, the reaction from the voting public is going to be like, wait, the, the one entity that's there to to look <laughs> to make sure right, that the government exactly. isn't wasting our money, <laughs> I mean, you're going to get rid of that one. I mean, even if the legislature were to pass the bill, it'd have to go on the ballot. It's a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. I don't think that people of Alabama are going to vote to eliminate their state auditor. I just don't see it happening. Well, ideally, since we have separate branches of government and have, you know, the legislature that's supposed to be looking into that and has some oversight over the executive branch and how things are done, I would like to think that our legislature would serve most of those purposes even without the state auditor's help. But unfortunately, we don't have a great track record of making that a reality. Yeah, and the Department of Public Examiners is accountable to the legislature. So, I mean, course, that's yeah. good. I think it would be better if they were accountable to somebody in the executive branch. But my, my opinion on it is if you're accountable to everyone, you're accountable to no one. I mean, how many legislators actually read the annual report from the Department of Public Examiners? I'm going to guess not very many. It's a very, very thick report. So I, I don't know. I just think it would be better to put it back under the auditor's office. It just makes more sense. Maybe they could do something uh, like Rand Paul does on Festivus where he issues out his airing of grievances and just does it like in twi tweet uh, Twitter form every year. And maybe if they did it that way, that might get more people. Because you know, if it's a summary and it's, it has to be in a tweet, people, I don't know, might be more likely to read it. Yeah, um, you're probably right about that. That's, that's Caleb's brilliant idea to make the state better is to have everything put out in tweet form. <laughs> anyway. All right, so uh, if somebody has heard what you've been saying and they like what they hear, they'd like to support you and see you as the state auditor for Alabama, how would they support you? Where would they go? Well, there's two things they can do. They can go to andrewsorrell.com, and Sorrell is S-O-R-R-E-L-L. -L. Yep, right there and on there, the screen they, for those of you watching. Perfect. They can, they can sign up. They can volunteer. They can request to sign. They can certainly make a donation. We even have a recurring donation option uh, on the website. We'd be very appreciative of that. The other thing you can do is you can look me up on Facebook, Andrew Sorrell for State Auditor. Got about 7,000 people already that follow my page, and I'd be honored to have each of your guests come on there and like and follow my page as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Representative Andrew Sorrell of House District 3, Muscle Shoals, thank you for being with us. I certainly do appreciate the interview. Thank you, Caleb. All right, and good luck when uh, Election Day comes up about, what, a year and a half from now? It's about 11 months till the primary. Primary oh, right, is June right. 24th. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the one I'm working towards first. And then, uh, well, in course, Alabama, that's the big one anyway. So That's correct, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck with that. And we will hopefully talk to you sometime between now and then and get an update. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one. That, of course, was Representative Andrew Sorrell representing the 3rd District of Alabama from Muscle Shoals. He is running for the Office of State Auditor, and that is going to be coming up in 11 months. So 
if you are interested in him as a candidate, be sure to check him out there. We're going to be right back in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back into the program, everybody. Thank you so much for continuing to be with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Be sure to like and subscribe. Smash that uh, rumble button if you're watching us on rumble, if you're watching us on record. We're actually trying to move the show to live on rumble, and we will get there eventually, but right now rumble's still kind of working out the technology side of it, and so... We're just not able to do that right now, but that will be coming at some point, I assure you. Right now, we're broadcasting on all of our regular mediums. And don't uh, also don't forget that we are on tons of mediums when it comes to the audio-only podcast. We're on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, all the places where you can find podcasts. Pretty much all of them were there. So if you're not watching or listening, that's really your fault. It's not because we're not doing everything <laughs> on our part. Uh, maybe we could be a better show, and that might inspire that as well. But hey, come on, we gotta <laughs> we gotta draw the line somewhere, right? All right. So there is a lot to talk about in the realm of religious freedom that went down this week. It's been a really interesting week for people like me that see that as being paramount and being one of their really core issues. The Supreme Court ruled this week nine to nothing in favor of a Catholic charity that won't allow gay couples to foster. And I hate to say it because I, I hate ruining someone's parade. I really do. I hate being the wet blanket in the room, but I am. And sometimes it's unmerited, but in this case, I think that it actually is. A lot of people are really cheering about, oh my gosh, we got a, a nine nothing decision saying that a Catholic adoption agency doesn't have to place kids with gay people. This is a very clear indication that even the woke side of the Supreme Court is on our side. No, it's not. Don't kid yourselves. If you look at what this decision actually said, if you look at the way that Chief Justice Roberts put together the opinion that was the prevailing opinion on this. And, and there were, there were concurrences from other justices and we'll get to that in a second. But if you look at the actual core opinion, the one that actually counts and is considered case law now is what Roberts and the other justices jo that joined on said was there wasn't anything wrong with persecuting against Christians that don't want to place children with homosexual couples. It was wrong for the city of Philadelphia in this particular case to do so because it felt like they were targeting Christians. This is a very, very bad decision. And the reason for that is not that I decide I wanted to win didn't win, but because it's a very hollow victory because now basically what they're saying to Philadelphia is that all you have to do to have your law in, enacted and to be able to discriminate against Christians is make the law, and this is a legal term, generally applicable. So instead of making a specific exception in their law saying these religious organizations that are persecuting against homosexuality, we're not going to contract with them anymore, what they've instead, uh, what, what they instead now need to do 
is go back and just say, uh, no, nobody that discriminates against homosexuality as far as adoption or fostering is allowed to operate. And then, at least according to the opinion that Roberts and the Supreme Court put out, if that is the case, then according to that Supreme Court decision, nothing the Catholics can do. They just won't be able to operate anymore. And so it is a good decision in the sense that it's a symbolic victory and it makes you feel good. But if you're actually looking at results and as conservatives, we're supposed to care more about results than we're supposed to care about feelings. If you, if you look at the actual facts, if you look at the actual results, the results are not great. And this is actually very similar to what happened in the Masterpiece Cake Shop. If you remember that Supreme Court case, they did side with Jack, the baker that did not want to bake a cake for a gay couple getting married, but they did so on the narrowest grounds. They did so basically saying it was wrong for this uh, state organization to discriminate against Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey, that's the uh, head of Twitter. Uh, whatever Jack's last name is, I forget now, but the, the guy who runs Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. Uh, poor Jack apparently is the only baker anywhere in Denver, Colorado, or anywhere in the state for that matter, because he was the one that was singled out. And the Supreme Court, by the way, correctly pointed that out. But what they then said in that same opinion was, basically, you can force somebody to bake a cake. You just have to do it and not sound so darn mean about it. You have to not sound like you're persecuting Christians when you do it. So as long as you're like super nice about it, then it's perfectly fine to do that. And that's part of the reason that Jack has now been in, I think, three and coming up on a fourth lawsuit. And this is the reason that when the Supreme Court plays these games and piddles around the edges, that it's not good for the American people. Because when you defend this case on the narrowest possible ground, all that does is leave everybody in a cloud of vagueness. Now, Chief Justice Roberts has done this over and over again. He has a desire for the court to seem like they're all on the same page and protect the quote-unquote integrity of the court, which, by the way, is not a goal that I find useless. I actually think protecting the integrity and the trustworthiness of the court is a good thing, but not at the expense of actually deciding things constitutionally or unconstitutionally. I think the thing that he's trying to shoot for is actually good, but I think what he's doing is he's prioritizing that above everything else. And because of that, the court is actually not doing its job. I mean, it would be kind of like if you were to look at the, uh, look at my organization, one of the, the companies that I work for, Faulkner University. If we decided, you know what, our goal should be to have the best women's volleyball team ever. And it's just a shame that all these volleyball players, they, they have to go to class and that takes out of, of practice time, and it puts a lot of stress on them, especially around game day. So we'll just, you know what, they don't have to go to classes anymore. We'll just emphasize and, and make sure and move everything else around to make sure the women's volleyball team is as good as they can be. Okay, you're kind of ignoring the fact that you're a university there, and these people are supposed to be students first, volleyball players second. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court is doing here. I, genu I genuinely mean this. I commend Chief Justice Roberts in caring so much about the institution of the Supreme Court that he wants to preserve its integrity in the public eye. 
But when you ignore everything else that the Supreme Court is actually supposed to do in pursuit of that goal, then you've messed up. And that's what Chief Justice Roberts has done here. I would a thousand times rather have a very good five to four decision than I would a very bad and very narrow nine to nothing decision. And the reason is, and this is what Justice Alito pointed out in his concurrence, Justice Alito said in his concurrence that all the city, essentially what I just said, all the city of Philadelphia has to do now is to just change their law to where they're not specifically targeting Christians, but put into law that any organization, regardless of who they are, if they deny putting foster children or adopted children with gay couples, that they can no longer operate within the city and boom, you've got your law and the Supreme Court can't do anything about it. And so this same organization is going to be back at the Supreme Court again, just like door, uh, just like uh, the, the Masterpiece Cake Shop thing. Because they ruled on such narrow grounds and because there was so much vagueness, this guy is having to go to court again and again and again. If they just come out and said, no, the man has a right to exercise his religion the way that he wants. And because of that, you cannot force this man to bake a cake that violates his religious principles. If they had just said that, this would have all been over. And by the way, that would have been the constitutionally correct thing to come to the conclusion on. And the same thing applies here. All the Supreme Court would have had to have done is say, no, you cannot discriminate against a Christian organization for holding to their deeply held religious beliefs. You can't do that. We have a First Amendment here. If the court had said that, this would all be over. But now we're going to be here five, six, seven years from now talking about the latest development in the new case in the Philadelphia Adoption Agency because Chief Justice Roberts is so terrified of doing anything that might even be perceived as controversial that he refuses to do his actual job. And that's the problem. Look, like I said, I think Chief Justice Roberts is trying to do the right thing here. But you're the Supreme Court. Do you know what the court does? It handles difficult and divisive issues. That's its job. You don't go to the Supreme Court for something that's settled. You don't go to the Supreme Court to try to sort through something that everybody agrees on because that would be pointless. You go to the court because the issue is controversial. And so Justice Roberts, frankly, needs to grow a pair and say, look, we're the Supreme Court. <laughs> we're supposed to handle things that people are not always going to agree with. We're supposed to settle disputes and controversies. That's our purpose. And sometimes it might draw the public ire. Sometimes it might lead to, you know, a handful of eggheads in the Washington Post that Justice Roberts thinks is representative of the whole country calling him some kind of racist or saying the Supreme Court has gone off the rails. Yeah, that, that might happen on occasion. But you're supposed to be dealing with things that by their very nature are controversial. And so that's going to happen regardless if you're doing your job right. And what's unfortunate is it's the American people that get caught in the crossfire, that get caught up in Roberts refusing to actually make a good decision on these things or to reach a decision that would be conclusive as opposed to intentionally vague to where uh, you're going to wind up with exactly the same case in court a few years later. And so really, I, I'm just frustrated by the fact that I, I, I don't want to be that guy 
that goes out to all the conservatives and goes like, yeah, that, that Supreme Court victory that you felt really good about, it actually sucks. I hate being that guy, but it's the truth. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm tired of the court piddling around the edges. I mean, it, it's kind of like if there was a guy going around punching people in the nose and the Supreme Court had this case and came back and said, well, you can punch people in the nose, but you have to do it to everybody equally and you have to like not look like you enjoy it while you're doing it. You just kind of have to be even and fair. And Why don't you just tell the guy, hey, knock it off, quit punching people in the nose. You don't have a right to do that. That's what should have happened here. And as usual, Chief Justice Roberts wussed out again. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> you can tell him a little riled up about this. But on the same issue, because we've seen this, this war on religious freedom go on for a while now, and unfortunately the Supreme Court is not the only place that it's getting fought, Democrats are basically saying the same thing because there's been a big controversy this week with the Catholic Church and how they deal with abortion. And in the wake of all this and in the wake of, and we'll get to this story in a second, people actually saying that they may, and U.S. bishops considering denying any politician that supports abortion the communion or the Eucharist or, or whatever the Catholics call it, it is, uh, it is communion for them as well. They're talking about actually doing that and actually penalizing people that do not adhere to Catholic doctrine, which as a church, perfectly reasonable, perfectly within their right to do so. But with this and with the controversy that's coming out of Mississippi recently, they had several reporters, to their credit, actually doing their job maybe not following up as much as I'd like, but actually doing their job and asking questions to the elected officials here. So here was one clip of Nancy Pelosi being asked, is a 15-week-old baby a human life? Thank you, Madam Speaker. Um, I'm with CNS News. The Supreme Court this fall will review a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Is an unborn baby at 15 weeks a human being? <coughs> Let me just say that I'm a big supporter of Roe v. Wade. Uh, I am a mother of five children in six years. I think I have some standing on this issue as to respecting a woman's right to choose. Is it a human being? Yes. What universe is that an answer to that question? Is a 15-week-old baby a human being? Uh, well, I'm a mother and also I support a woman's right to choose. Okay, that has nothing to do with the question I just asked. Look, if you don't, then say you don't. If you do, then say you do. But that's just a deflection. All that is is a way to avoid answering the question. And she's not the only one that did that this week. The spokesperson for the President of the United States, President Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, essentially gave exactly the same answer when asked the same question. Does the President believe that a 15-week-old unborn baby is a human being? Are you asking me if the president supports a woman's right to choose? He does. Go ahead. No, that's not the question she asked. If she was going to ask that question, she would have asked that question. By the way, there would be no reason to ask that question. Everyone already knows the answer to that. He has an official platform. What that platform does not answer is whether or not he believes a 15-week-old baby is, in fact, a human being. And that's why that question was asked. And Jen Psaki just punts on it and says no, and then moves on immediately. Did the same thing that Nancy Pelosi did. The second that she had any breathing room 
before giving the person any chance to respond, just went to the next question. They don't want to talk about it. And as I've said for a long time, the reason they do not like being questioned on this, the reason they don't want to talk about it is because they know if they actually have the conversation, they lose every single time. There is not a good way to make a pro-abortion argument. There is not a good way to argue that a 15-week-old baby in the womb is not a person, but a baby that was born two minutes ago is. There is not a good argument for that. There never has been. There never will be. And that's why they don't want to have that conversation and the reason they avoid it like the plague. And by the way, like I was saying before, the Catholic Church is contemplating, partly because now the most prominent Catholic, and by the way, Nancy Pelosi is also a Catholic, uh, the most prominent Catholic in the world other than Pope Francis is the President of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden. And I really thought it was fun to look at all the headlines and how they covered this, the mainstream media covering this particular issue. Let's go ahead and look at that. You see there, The Guardian actually has Biden threatened with communion ban over position on abortion. Uh, New York Times targeting Biden, Catholic bishops. And so you see threatened, targeted, uh, in a rift with Biden, in a dramatic show of force by the conservative Catholic movement, the uh, very objective New York Times there, the Washington Post, Catholic bishops this week will discuss if Biden qualifies for communion. It's the culmination of decades of abortion politics. So the Washington Post asserting this is just a political discussion. It has nothing to do with the fact that Catholicism has been against abortion for like 2,000 years now. It has nothing to do with that. It's It's just all about politics. But... Unfortunately, this has become kind of the standard operating procedure for the mainstream media. Anytime that something that they don't like happens or anything that paints a Democrat in a bad light happens, it's always the story is not what the Democrat did or the, the fact that Joe Biden is against abortion. The headline is Republicans pounce or evangelicals go after, in this case, the Catholic Church threatens or attacks or it's a power grab or it's all politics or whatever. Anything to avoid saying, look, the man doesn't live by the teachings of his own church. Which, just plain and simple, you look at, this is the teaching of the Catholic Church, this is Joe Biden, they don't mesh. Any person with a logically functioning brain would be able to see that, and Catholics will tell you that as well. But Joe Biden luckily does have an answer to this, because he was asked about it directly, and he's got a, a very satisfying answer I think if you can uh, make out between the mumbles and the mouthfuls of Jello pudding, uh, what Joe Biden is saying here, let's go ahead and watch that clip. You commented about what the Catholic bishops have done. Um, are you concerned about this rift within the Catholic Church, and are you concerned about this action? Say again. The Catholic bishops are moving on this resolution that would prove prevent you and, and others who've um, supported abortion from receiving communion. Are you concerned about the rift in the Catholic Church, and how do you feel personally about that? That's a private matter, and I don't think that's going to happen. Thank you. So it's a private matter, and it's not going to happen. That's, that's Joe Biden's answer. In what universe would, would any Christian accept that on any other issue? And I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I'm just an outsider looking in. But if any member of my church were asked a matter of morality publicly, even if they took a libertarian stance on it, like I do on several issues, like, for example, 
I believe that it is wrong to have sex outside of marriage, but I also do not believe that the government should be policing that. I mean, it is taking place as long as it's happening between two consenting adults. Even if I think it's wrong, I don't think that the government should be policing it or trying to stop it from happening. I can make that case. I can make that answer. But I would never say like, oh, well, um, my stance on it is it's a private matter and it's, it's you know, not, really not my business and just walk off. No, I, I could make the case that my public policy is one thing, my private beliefs and what I believe is morally correct is different because I see the roles of church and government as two different things. I can make that argument. Joe Biden doesn't want to make that argument. He wants to get the heck out of there as fast as he can because he knows it makes him look bad. And, you know, that's saying something considering that Joe Biden already looks pretty bad. But anyway, this is not a this is not an answer that any Christian should accept. But let's pretend. Genuinely. Let's pretend that this is an honest answer, that he genuinely kind of takes the stance that I do on the issue that I just gave the example of, where I believe that morally this is wrong, but it's really not the place of the government to be stepping in and, and making a call on that. Let, let's pretend that that's an honest answer that is really Joe Biden's stance on it. If that were the case, if that were true, um, where does Joe Biden denounce abortion as evil? Can someone provide me with that soundbite or newspaper interview where Joe Biden says, no, abortion is an evil thing. No person should ever do it. Abortion is wrong. But, you know, as a legal perspective, I, I think that it should be allowed. Now, I think that that's hogwash because if you believe that a 15-week-old baby, to use the example we just used, is a human being, then of course the government has a vested interest in protecting that life just like it would somebody that's 10, 15, 20 years old from being murdered. It has an interest in protecting that life and legally intervening. But again, let's just pretend he's taking the libertarian stance on it and saying, well, it, privately, I believe this, but publicly, I don't believe that that's the government's role. Okay, then why hasn't Joe Biden said that it's morally wrong and evil and no one should do it? You know, he would have the option of doing that, saying, well, I'm not going to do anything to curtail that or, or to be against it. I'm pro uh, a woman being able to choose but it's the wrong choice to make. He's never done that, ever. Can, can anybody provide me with a clip anywhere of Joe Biden in his 40 years in office ever talking about how abortion is the wrong thing to do, that it is a moral evil? You can't do it because it doesn't exist. Furthermore, again, if he's taking the libertarian stance on it, he's just like, well, that's a private matter. Why is he in favor of federal funding for abortions? Because the example that I just gave, you know, people engaging in premarital sex, um, I would be against the government funding like hotel rooms for that to take place. I would be against us funding it in other countries, but he supports the federal government giving money to Planned Parenthood. And he previously supported the Hyde Amendment, but now is against it. And by the way, in layman's terms, all that means is he's in favor of sending money to other countries so that it can be used to fund abortion there. He's for that, even though, to his credit, he was against it for a long time, but now he's not. Okay, well, how do you square that? If it's just a private matter and it shouldn't affect your policy, then why is it that he seems to be very, not just, you know, benign to abortion or just like, well, I don't think we should touch it. He actively wants government to facilitate abortions. How can you do that if you believe that it's morally wrong and it's a private matter? That, that doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, 
if this were true, again, if we're taking Biden at his word and he, you know, pretending it really is an honest answer and he believes that the government should just stay out of it. Um, how do you explain this? This is a Fox News report from earlier this summer. Biden said he would restore the pre-Hobby Lobby contraceptive mandate in the wake of the Little Sisters ruling. So you may recall that this particular case, the Little Sisters of the Poor, a Catholic organization and a charity organization, they were being forced to provide abortion pills and contraceptives to women via Obamacare, a policy that he had a hand in enacting. And he said in this article that he was disappointed in the Supreme Court's ruling that there is a clear path to fixing it, electing a new president, you know, him, who would end Donald Trump's ceaseless attempts to gut every aspect of the Affordable Care Act. And then he said, if I am elected, I will restore the Obama-Biden policy that existed before the Hobby Lobby ruling, providing an exemption for houses of worship and accommodation for nonprofit organizations with religious missions. The problem with that is that wouldn't work because what he would be doing is continuing to force people, including Catholics, to have to provide abortion pills and contraceptives, which I don't have a problem with contraceptives. I don't think that there's anything morally wrong with them, but Catholics do. They would be forced to violate their own religion under a policy that he had a hand in enacting. And once that was done away with, he went out and publicly advocated for reenacting that. And by the way, if you think that that's the only example, I love this one particularly because it's a headline directly from the Catholic News Agency. So this is a Catholic news organization covering this. This accommodation will allow women, this is, um, <clears throat> this is Joe Biden quoting here, they're quoting him here. This accommodation will allow women at these organizations to access contraceptive coverage not through their employer-provided plan, but instead through their insurance company or by a third-party administrator. The Little Sisters of the Poor would not have qualified as a nonprofit organization with a religious mission under the Obama-era accommodations. See, that's why the court case was happening, because they didn't qualify for that exemption. The order serves and employs people of all or no faiths in accordance with their vocation to serve the elderly and poor. The Little Sisters of the Poor have repeatedly stated that authorizing a, quote, third-party administrator, unquote, to provide birth control to their employees is still a violation of their beliefs and is not an acceptable compromise. And by the way, to any person that's actually a devout Christian and lives out their faith, even if you're not a Catholic, you understand this. That saying, well, you won't pay for it directly you'll just be paying for it through this other organization that you'll be paying them to. Um, no, that's not okay. It would not be okay for a part of my money, for example, to go to funding abortions because I believe that that is morally wrong. I would refuse to do so. I can't do that. And yet that's exactly what he's saying. And the little sister of the poor is saying, that won't work for us. We're still not going to do it. And so the devout Catholic Biden that doesn't think that he should be denied communion because he supports abortion is saying, well, you know, that's a private matter. And, and it's, you know, I, I may privately be against abortion. Um, how are you privately against abortion? If all of your public policies are actively enforcing the facilitation of abortions, by the way, funded by Catholics that disagree with you on this. 
it is mind-blowing how he can try to make the case that he's privately against abortion, but publicly, um, you know, his policies say the exact opposite of that. He's not even benign towards abortion. He actively promotes it. It's absolutely disgusting. And if it's a private matter, if we're going to do this quote-unquote separation of church and state thing, then how can you say to another person that your privately held Christian belief now must be facilitated by your money being given to it? That's not keeping those two things separate. And by the way, I'm not saying even necessarily that it should always be kept separate. I'm just saying that if that's the standard he wants to hold, he's not living up to it. And by the way, Ted Lieu, a representative from the state of California, actually spoke out on this as well, who is presumably, uh, I believe he's a Catholic as well. Uh, representative of California, Ted Lieu, said this in a tweet, which just astounded me. Dear, and that's basically the Catholic church is who he's tagging there. I'm Catholic and I support contraception, women's right to choose, treatments for infertility, the right for people to get a divorce, the right of same-sex marriage, all those things, by the way against Catholic church teaching. And then he says, and this is what really gets me. Next time I go to church, I dare you to deny me communion. I'm not a Catholic, but I am a Christian and I do have elders. I would never, ever, ever, ever speak to my church leadership that way. Because they are ordained by God Specifically, this is something that is talked about a lot in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus. They are put into that position specifically. Doesn't mean they're infallible. Doesn't mean that they can't also make mistakes. And doesn't mean that I haven't occasionally disagreed with them. In fact, there have been several occasions where I disagreed with my elders, but I deferred to their leadership because that's what the Bible teaches me I'm supposed to do. Ted Lieu is saying, basically, Catholic Church, I dare you to say that I'm not allowed to have communion. I don't understand this mentality. I really don't. You bought the ticket. If I believed my church was doing something that was biblically incorrect or wrong, you know what I would do? Leave that church. I wouldn't be a part of it anymore. If they're doing something that I think is biblically or morally wrong, I don't stay at that congregation. But the reason that Democrats do this is because they want that mantle of religion. They want to be able to cloak themselves in it and see themselves as righteous, but they don't want to actually ever have their religion tell them that there are things that they have to change about themselves or beliefs that they might have to alter. They don't want a church that challenges them. They don't want a church that changes or transforms them. They just want a church to be able to say in a campaign ad, hey, this is the church that I go to. To them, that's really all church is. It is merely a political tool to bring out of the closet when they feel that it's necessary or they feel that it's needed or they feel that it might help them in some way and then immediately discard any parts of it that they don't like. They kind of think of church as a, a you know, a pot roast kind of thing. They're, oh, I like the potatoes, don't like the carrots, I'm going to leave those out. But I'm gonna... Look, when you became Catholic, you knew this. They haven't changed their beliefs on any of those things. That's, it's been the same for thousands of years before you were even born. You knew what you were getting into when you became Catholic. And if you were born Catholic, you knew what you were getting into even as you grew up and decided whether or not you were going to remain a part of that faith or not. Like, don't get mad at the Catholic Church. They're not the ones that moved. You are. And so it just astounds me that somebody can be so brazen and talk to their church leaders in this way. He's actually mad at the Catholics 
for following their own teachings that he knew about before he joined their faith. And by the way, if this were all this were going to, you know, just a spat here and there between Democrats and the Catholic Church, I think that most people expect that. That's not something that is in any way new. But what is new is now you have another representative, also from the state of California, who is actually threatening to revoke the church's tax-exempt status. So here is Representative Huffman, who is discussing this, Jared Huffman. He says, if they're going to politically weaponize religion, I love that, uh, Again, they haven't changed this belief in 2,000 years, and yet somehow they're just now trying to weaponize religion. Uh, by rebuking Democrats who support women's reproductive choice, then a rebuke of their tax-exempt status may be in order. Basically, if you people over at the Catholic Church dare disagree with us on this and excommunicate us from the church as a result of that, well, then we're just going to have to reevaluate your tax-exempt status. Do you think the Catholic Church really cares? I mean, I, I'm not a Catholic. I think there's a lot of things that Catholics do that are wrong. I've publicly debated Catholic priests on the radio over and over again. My, my disagreements with the church are abundant, and people know what they are. But the idea that this guy can come to the Catholic Church, which has stood for a couple thousand years, and be like, oh, yeah, well, um, yeah, we're going to pull your tax-exempt status. Like, yeah, I, I don't think the Catholic Church is severely worried about America pulling their tax-exempt status when it comes to that. And another thing, too, for all the disagreements I might have with the Catholic Church, there's no question they do an incredible amount of good when it comes to feeding the hungry, helping the poor, taking care of orphans, that kind of thing. And if they remove their tax-exempt status, that just means more money is going to be going, going to the government and less money is going to be going to that. Now, the Democrats believe that the government is their church and is their God, and that's the people that should be taking care of that anyway, so they would probably be fine with that. But the point is they would be directly taking things from a charity organization that does a lot to help poor people that Democrats claim to care about and be using it to line their own pockets as a retribution for the Catholic Church daring to tell them that they might be wrong on something. And the funny thing is, what we just read about Biden, well, if this is just a private matter, like Biden said, and this is not something that the government should be getting involved in, and, and that's not really... Um, isn't this just using politics to try to make the church change what they believe? Is it, is it that exactly this? Aren't you doing exactly the same thing you're accusing them of doing? But I guess Representative Huffman doesn't understand that. I, I don't think that he's applying a whole, lot of region, uh, a whole lot of reason here, and that's probably part of it. Um, but the truth is, leftists need affirmation from others because them, to them, all morality is subjective. And so because of that, they kind of have to feel as though they have some consensus. They have people backing them and telling them that they're morally correct. And so when anyone says that they're morally incorrect, it's something that deeply bothers them. Now, to a Christian that understands the word of God and understands there is objective truth and that that objective truth predates them and exists outside of them and outside of all subjectivity, then that doesn't matter to them as much because if I'm the only person that, for example, believes Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you know who's right? Me. I don't care if everyone else agrees with me or not. I'm still right because Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. If 
there's 700 point or there's 7.2 billion people in this world and Caleb's the only one that believes Jesus Christ rose from the dead I'm still the one that's right no matter how many people disagree with me liberals don't think that way they have to have the community of agreement because in their mind morality is all subjective and it's sort of the collective that decides what is morally right and morally wrong and so because of that they have to have that affirmation from other people and so when someone like the catholic church tells them no you're wrong i don't i don't care how many people agree with you i don't care if it's popular i don't care if it's politically prudent you're wrong on this they can't stand it and they hate people that don't answer to them they can't stand that either they can't stand people that you're like well we'll take your tax exempt status from you and they're like all right you're still wrong you can do that to us and we hate it but at the end of the day we're not going to change what we teach or what we believe just because you disagree even if you do something to us see throughout all of history including the history of the catholic church that has been the mo of every tyrant and dictator ever and it's the reason that people that believe in something higher than themselves scare the mess out of them because anybody that doesn't see the government as the ultimate authority that sees the, themselves being accountable to a higher power accountable to god there's not a whole lot the government can do to threaten those people, especially if they believe they're going to live forever if they do what God says. How are you going to threaten someone like that? And that's the thing that bothers them about this whole thing. Because to them, like I said, religion is just a political tool to be wielded, and they're fine with casting it away whenever it disagrees with them. The IRS actually, just last week, they rejected a Christian group's nonprofit status, and the rationale, the explanation they gave, I think it was very telling. So let's go ahead and look at, this is the official letter from the IRS. They said to this group, uh, a group called Christians Engage, uh, they said, you educate individuals on how to choose between imperfect candidates as well as instruct individuals that parties matter. They should look at the party that they represent and the core beliefs and values of that party. They should look at the, what the candidate says about the issues and see if their beliefs align with the Bible, individuals should know the Bible, vote on the Bible, and vote on its values. That passage was included in their list of reasons that they could not accept this group, Christians Engage, as a 501c tax-exempt nonprofit organization. So apparently, teaching people that you should read the Bible and see what political candidates say and if they say something that is contrary to the Bible, not vote for those people, that constitutes a loss of your nonprofit status, according to them. And they continue on in another part of that same letter. You also educate believers on national issues that are central to the belief in the Bible as, inerrant, as the inerrant word of God. Uh, M there is word of God. They're using legalese. It's a replacement. Anyway. You educate Christians in the areas where they can be instrumental in areas of sanctity of life, the definition of marriage, biblical justice, law versus lawlessness, freedom of speech, religious liberty, government, business, ethics, human trafficking, fiscal responsibility in government and budgeting, defense, borders and immigration, U.S. and Israel relations. So, again, this is included in the IRS's list of reasons they cannot consider them a nonprofit is because they teach about all of these things. These are pretty standard political teachings found inside the Word of God. So apparently if you're just teaching what the Bible says about these things, that is enough to disqualify you from being considered a 501c according 
to the IRS. But this was the real clincher. And this was sort of the conclusion of their letter that the IRS reached. They said in this rejection letter, and by the way, you can see the legend up there. You'll see that when they use the letter D, that means that's shorthand for Republican. Uh, look down there at the bottom of it where they just kind of repeat a whole bunch of stuff that they said earlier that we looked at. And then they say the Bible teachings are typically affiliated with the Republican Party and candidates. This disqualifies you from exemption under IRC Section 501c3. <laughs> Think about that. They just provided you a long list of reasons that you can't be a tax-exempt organization, Christians engaged. The first thing that they said is, well, first, you're teaching people about the Bible and you're telling them to vote based on those beliefs, tell them vote based on the principles presented in the Bible. The second part, they, they gave a laundry list of, of things that you're supposed to teach about, which they said included things like sanctity of life and the U.S. border and so on and so forth. And they said, well, that disqualifies you. And the reason that this disqualifies you when they, they get to their conclusion is because those things tend to support the Republican Party. That's astounding because the IRS just admitted if you do those two things, if you follow biblical teachings and you vote based on those biblical teachings, then it must mean you're supporting Republicans, <laughs> which if I were Democrats, I would be ticked at that because the IRS is basically admitting if you do what the Bible says, you'll vote Republican. <laughs> that's not me saying it. That's not my opinion. That's the IRS saying it. And I don't think the IRS realized or thought about it in those terms. That's exactly what they are asserting. That the reason they cannot consider this group an impar impartial, and I thought that it was wrong for them to reject their nonprofit status, but the reason they say you can't be a nonprofit, you can't be impartial, is because you're teaching people to vote based on the Bible teachings. And if they do that, they'll be voting Republican. And because it, it supports one party but not the other, then you don't qualify for nonprofit status. Now, I think that's ridiculous, but the funny thing is I don't completely disagree because all of those teachings would necessarily not benefit the Democrats. Now, it could also actually hurt the Republicans because a lot of the things that they're talking about, those were exactly the same arguments that I was making during Trump's first presidential run. Now, I am in the most pro-Trump state in America, so I kind of doubt the fact that I chose to talk on my show not voting for Trump really made any impact in the 2016 election. But the point is, that is actually something I was teaching people that hurt the Republican Party because I went third party. And so I think that they're wrong in their conclusion that doing that necessarily always benefits Republicans. But it is darn funny that the IRS is basically saying what a lot of people that, that I've known on the conservative side have been saying for a long time, well, if you believe in the Bible and believe what it teaches, you can't vote for Democrats. And that's essentially what the IRS just admitted to. Um, but, but here's the thing in all of that. I generally, I generally do agree with that assertion. But the question is, whose fault is that? Is it the fault of this Christian organization that just wants to teach people uh, how to be politically savvy and how to apply their biblical principles? to politics and voting and all of that? Or is it the fault of the Democrat Party who used to care about things like catering to Christians and talking about their beliefs and, and trying to be 
you know, make a God-fearing moral country that um, may not have always agreed with people on the right on things and, and how to implement them, but at the end of the day did believe in God and wanted to please him. Well, whose fault is it that that can no longer be said of the Democrat Party? The Democrat Party. They're the ones that decided they wanted to go super leftist and uber secular and embrace, you know, all kinds of Muslim extremism and, uh, you know, all of those things that are antithetical to most evangelical Christians. That's the Democrat Party that made that move. And so you can't say to a group of Christians that are just teaching what the Bible says, say, well, there's there's two main political parties and one of them, they really disagree with everything the Bible says. Therefore, you can't just teach what the Bible says. No, that would mean the Democrats are doing this. And by the way, I, I think that this is an unintended consequence. I don't think they meant to do this. But the Democrats, by doing that, would then be able to say that every religious or even secular organization that is teaching something that disagrees with them, all they have to do is say, no, we as Democrats disagree with that. And then that organization cannot get the tax exempt status. That's not this group's fault. That's the Democrat Party's fault. If the Democrat Party wanted that to not be the case, if they wanted it to be to where someone could read the scripture and then come to the conclusion that, oh, well, the scripture says this, I should vote for that Democrat. You know what the solution to that would be? Nominate some people that actually espouse the beliefs found in the Bible. Instead, they're doing the opposite. I have a friend who for the longest time was a Democrat, a member of the same church as me, a different congregation. Um, he was a, a member of the church that came down to Faulkner to speak, really good guys, as pro-life and as pro-God as anybody that you'll meet. He was the minority leader for the state of Tennessee's House of Representatives as a Democrat for years. You know what they did? They ousted him because he disagreed with abortion. The Democrat Party actively called anybody that believed anything the, the Bible said from their ranks. That's the Democrat Party's fault. That's not this Christian organization's fault. And finally, um, anyone that believes that the IRS would do this to, like, let's say, the Nation of Islam, another religious organization, or even Planned Parenthood, is out of their minds. Do you think that they would go to Planned Parenthood who requested, by the way, Planned Parenthood is a 501c, so they are a nonprofit organization that is tax exempt. Do you think the IRS would ever go to Planned Parenthood and go, well, yeah, but a lot of your political activism directly benefits the Democrats, which, by the way, it does. They actually donate to Democrats. Yeah, it actually really kind of benefits the Democrats. And so because of that, we're just going to have to pull your tax-exempt status, Planned Parenthood. No, they would never do that. They know the backlash from that would be swift and horrific from the left. But they feel perfectly comfortable saying exactly the same thing to a religious organization that is not even trying to directly benefit the Republicans. They're just saying, hey, read what the Bible says and, and do what it says and consider that when you're voting. Nation of Islam. Nation of Islam, I don't even know necessarily has a, I mean, it seems that only Democrats like them. Uh, you've got very prominent Democrats like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar that are really good buddies with people at the Nation of Islam that have been photographed with Louis Farrakhan and, and so on and so forth, it seems like their political activism seems to really benefit. And I have no idea if they're a nonprofit or not. Um, but could you see the IRS, if they are a nonprofit, going up to Nation of Islam and go like, yeah, we're going to have to revoke your tax exempt status because it seems like 
your political activism really only benefits one party. Uh, no, no one with a thinking brain in their head believes that. And yet, when it comes to Christians, the IRS feels perfectly comfortable saying, yeah, we think some of the things you're teaching might accidentally benefit Republicans in most cases, so we're just going to have to reject your status. It is. It really does go back to what we were saying earlier with, with Joe Biden and the abortion thing and, and denying him communion. They have this attitude on the left. How dare a religion tell me what to believe or that, that I might actually have to change? To them, religion is just a cudgel to be used. It is merely a tool, a thing that they can put in their campaign ads. That's all it means to them. And by the way, there's Republicans that that's all it means to them too. I'm not saying that Republicans are immune from that, but it seems like consistently on the left that to them, religion should never tell them how to behave, how to live, what beliefs they should espouse, what kind of behavior they should do in public or private life. How dare religion tell me how to live or that I might have to change or might have to repent of some of the things that I've done? No, religion should be nothing but something that affirms what I'm doing is already right. That's what they actually want religion to be. They want to have the prestige. They want to have the look. They want to have the fake facade, they kind of pharisaical there. They, they want to have the whitewashed tomb that looks pretty on the outside, but inside is, is full of decay and dead men's bones, as Jesus said. They'd rather have that version of religion because that version requires nothing from them. It requires no sacrifice. It requires no change. It requires no contemplation. It just tells them that they're right, pats them on the head, gives them their Eucharist, and tells them to go about their merry way killing babies. That's what they want religion to be. But that's not what the religion of Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ did not die on a cross so that you could continue living your life the way that you did before you joined his church. That is simply not the way that that works. And anybody that thinks that it is has either lived in that lifestyle so long they don't know anything else, or they know better and are actively working for the other side. They are actively rejecting the word of God, even though they know better for whatever their own selfish motivations may be. Those are the only two options, and neither one of them are very good. Let's go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> and for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we have Joy Reid is going to be the source of this particular Daily Dose of Stupid. She had this tweet come out the other day, which I thought was just hilarious. And I feel, I don't usually make arguments of authority because I feel that they're weak, but I, I think you'll see why I'm going to make this one. I'm going to make an exception to that rule for this one particular one. And then I'll, I'll get into some more substantive arguments here in a second. So this is Joy Reid the other day tweeting about critical race theory. And her response to one of the tweets in this thread was, Currently, most K-12 students already learn a kind of Confederate race theory whereby the daughters of the Confederacy long ago imposed a version of history wherein slavery was not so bad and had nothing to do with the Civil War. And lynchings and violence never happened. Okay. I want you to keep in mind when I say this that I'm 32 years old. I graduated in 2007. I went K through 12 to the same school, same school, same building, never, never moved schools the entire 13 years of my pre-college educational career. This town, Marbury High, is a podunk town. It is, an, it is in Otaga County, 
the county that has the most dirt roads per square mile of any county in America. So this is out in the boonies. It's the middle of nowhere. You've heard of one stoplight towns. We didn't have a stoplight. We had one four-way stop right next to the Sitco, which was the only gas station in town. That's it. That's where I'm from. This is extremely rural Alabama. And it's only about 45 minutes away from Montgomery, the original capital of the Confederacy. Furthermore, it is only five minutes away from the Confederate Memorial Park. It was so close that you could actually walk to it if you wanted to. It was easier to drive because it is a couple miles. But you can literally walk from my high school to the Confederate Memorial Park. At the school, it was almost the entire time I was there, roughly 85 to 90% white. So an extremely white school. Very small school, only about 500 students, K through 12. In my career at that school, out of the 12 years that I had history, I only had one black history teacher one year in the seventh grade. If anybody was the poster child for Confederate race theory, it would have been me. If anybody in America was learning Confederate race theory, there is no one better situated to have had that taught to them than me. I can assure you it never happened. It simply didn't. We learned about lynchings. We learned about the Civil War. We learned that slavery pay, played a significant part in the Civil War. In fact, I think that my history books probably overemphasized its impact. Not to say that it wasn't the biggest contributing factor, because I think it was, but I think my history books actually overdid it and talked about it as though it was the only thing that was a contributing factor to the Civil War. It talked a lot about lynchings. It also talked an awful lot about the founders being slave owners, that kind of thing. I, I, frankly, I think it overemphasized that a little bit and didn't tell the whole story on that either. But my point in all of that is, if there was anybody that was going to get a whitewashed version of history that favored the South, it should have been me. And all 12 years that I took history there, it never happened. Not once. Now, there is a tiny kernel of truth to what she was saying in the, the Daughters of Confederacy back in the day in the state of Alabama and some other states. They basically approved history and sort of fudged it to where it wouldn't be too offensive or too uh, harsh on the South. And that probably wasn't a great idea because after all, they're not educators and they're not historians per se. And so why would they have input into the way that this was going to be taught? I, I understand the rationale there. But the thing is, that stopped in the 70s. And again, we're, we're moving now from anecdotal evidence to actual evidence, actual um, arguments for this. I found about three or four articles, several of them from Alabama publications, including AL.com, which I'm normally fairly critical of. But they even said that this stuff, uh, the farthest back they could trace it was being used maybe into the 70s. And so at best, that was 50 years ago. Joy Reid said in her tweet, the very first word in that tweet was, currently, it's simply not happening. And this is a narrative that they are absolutely married to and will not let go no matter what. They want people to believe that we're essentially living in exactly the same America as we were living in in the 1960s and 70s in the middle of the civil rights movement. They want, to, they want people to think that we have made zero progress since then. 
And if they were teaching wrong history back then, they were wrong. And it should have been revised to reflect what actually happened. But that already happened. That's not to say that the history kids are learning now in high schools is perfect. In fact, I'm very critical of that as well. But not because it was whitewashed with confederacyism. That's just stupid. I mean, look at me. I'm the whitest person on planet Earth, and you know my background. I just laid it out for you. If anyone was going to be taught Confederate race history, it would have been me, and it didn't happen. It wasn't happening then, back before 2007. It's not happening now. But Joy Reid and people on the left have to continue to push this narrative that things haven't changed in 50 years. But here's the thing. Even if it were true, even if every word of what she were saying were 100% true, that we were still living under the Daughters of Confederacy version of history to where, um, and I don't even think their version of history said all the things that she claimed, but uh, that slavery really wasn't that big a deal and it really wasn't that bad and it had nothing to do with the Civil War and there were no lynchings and the Civil Rights Movement didn't really have... Okay, let's pretend that everything that she just claimed was 100% correct. It's still a bad argument. And here's why. Teaching history badly is not an excuse to teach history badly in a different way later. Two wrongs do not make a right. Saying that there were some school children that learned history wrong, or in, in Reed's case, claiming that it is still going on and they're still learning history in a whitewashed, confederately approved way. Even if that were the case, it still would not be an excuse to skew history the other way and teach it incorrectly in a different light. See, this is the problem with this whole tribalist game that we've got going back and forth, is everybody should just be for, let's just teach history the way it actually happened. Let's just go to original sources. You know, don't even worry about the historians all that much. Let's just go to original sources and teach history based on what we know about it. Believe me, I am in favor of overhauling the way that we teach history in this country. It's been bad for a really long time. And as somebody that studied history a lot on his own and had to teach himself a lot of that history, I can attest to that. But because we have taught history incorrectly in one way, that is not an excuse to teach history badly in a different direction or favoring a different group in the future. That simply does not make any sense, even if what she was saying were true. But they are so obsessed with teaching that America has made no progress, and this is the only thing that apparently that Joy Reid can muster. So... Take it for what it is. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the chaplain's report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our chaplain's report for today does come from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to continue our series in that. And you may recall that our last passage that we read, Saul is pursuing after David after the incident at Keilah. So he thought he had him pinned down. David was able to escape thanks to God's help. And so now he's just kind of roaming around and Saul is pursuing after him up in the hills, up in the wilderness in Israel. And so this little meeting and this little episode that we're going to look at today takes place in 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 through 18. Now David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph. 
and Horash. And Jonathan, Saul's son, set out and went to David at Horash and encouraged him in God. He said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be second in command to you, and Saul my father knows that as well. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horash, while Jonathan went to his house. I think the first thing that we need to dissect before really understanding what that verse means is look at what the significance of the covenant that they made really means here. Because covenant is a word that we kind of have a, a flowery idea about, and, and there's some correctness to that. I mean, it's something that's very serious. What are the covenants that are mentioned in the scripture? So we have something to compare, some kind of baseline to work off of. Well, we know that God makes covenants with people. He made a covenant with Abraham that his people would be taken care of and that he would make him a great nation. He made a covenant with Noah that he would never destroy the world again through the flood. He made a covenant with Adam that eventually uh, he and Eve, that one day Satan would bruise his, uh, one day he would uh, bruise mankind's heel and mankind would bruise his head, of course, culminating in Jesus. So God makes covenants with men on a pretty regular basis. He makes a covenant with Moses and the children of Israel to start the nation of Israel. And then, of course, we have a covenant with Christ. There is another covenant, though, that can be entered into through people. And the most common covenant, there are other covenants mentioned in the Bible like this one that are not this, but the most common one is marriage. So a covenant's not just a promise. That's part of it. But a covenant is more like a deeply held solemn vow. It's a lifelong commitment. It is something that is so much more than a promise. It's a, a dedication to something that is, is far deeper than just your regular like, okay, I promise I'll be at your speech that you're giving or something like that. I mean, th this is something that will affect a person's life. And so David and Jonathan commit themselves to supporting one another. They commit themselves to as brothers in Christ, or in this case, you know, predating Christ, of course, as two men that are trying to live the way that God wants them to live, that they will be there to support and help one another. And that they're always going to be looking out for one another. And by the way, they've done a pretty good job of this up until this point already. Jonathan's already helped save David's life on a number of occasions. And I mean, I think Jonathan knows that David would do anything for him as well. And so this covenant that they engage in, it's something that is not to be taken lightly. It's very strong. And another thing that we have to remember about this, that just by showing up, but much more swearing allegiance to David this is something that Jonathan was knowingly putting himself in harm's way. His life could very easily be taken by his father if his father finds out about this. If he knows that Jonathan has not only gone out to see David without his permission, but more importantly has committed to protecting and helping him whenever he can, that would be viewed as treason. And by the way, don't think that Saul is not above doing something to him because he's his son. Multiple times we've seen in this narrative already, Saul has sought to do harm even to Jonathan when he defied him. He was willing to even take his own son's life at one point. 
And so don't think for a second that Jonathan didn't know that. Don't think for a second that Jonathan didn't understand what he was doing here. But he did it anyway because he knew that David was the one that was right in God's eyes. And because of that, and because Jonathan had a desire to also be on God's side, he sided with David over his father. That was a choice that he made. And he did so knowing that it was dangerous. So, I think that the lesson to take from that is Jonathan loves God and David more than he fears Saul. And I think that's a powerful lesson for us to take to heart as well. We should love God more than we're afraid of people. We should love Jesus more than we're afraid of losing our job, losing our savings, uh, not getting you know whatever prestige or, or honor that we have, being an outcast from the community. If we love any of those things more than we love Jesus, that is going to lead us astray. Jonathan, even though he knows it might cost him his own life, is saying, no, I must be on God's side. I must be doing what God would want me to do. And God clearly, based on his actions, has demonstrated he wants David to be king, not Saul. So I'm going to forge a covenant with him and be on their side as opposed to my father's. Not because I don't love my father. Not because I don't care about him and want what's best for him. Remember, Jonathan eventually goes on to die in battle next to his father, defending him. And so this isn't a lack of love for his father, but it is an acknowledgement that my dedication to God supersedes my dedication to my father. It is more important as a relationship and as an obligation than my obligation even to my own flesh and blood, my own father. And I think that also means that because he had such faith, because remember, he says, look, you're going to be king. You're going to be king in place of my father. And I will be your second in command. And of course, that never happens because he does die in battle. But what that does illustrate is that Jonathan had absolute faith. He had trust that this is going to be what happened because God ordained it. Therefore, it will come to pass. Doesn't matter what my dad does. Doesn't matter what everybody else does. Doesn't matter if we're invaded by the Philistines or whatever. God said you're going to be king. You're going to be king. It's as simple as that. I wish more Christians had that kind of respect for God's word now. They looked at the scripture and said, well, God said it. That's, that's the end of the argument. I no longer need to parse out whether or not, uh, how am I going to react to this? Or No, I mean, that's what the Bible says in plain English. Ergo, it's going to happen. And so that's exactly the same thing that we're dealing with right here. God said, David, you're going to be king. He anointed him by a prophet. Okay, God said it. That's what's going to happen. His faith really does... I mean, kind of leave you awestruck with the kind of confidence that he had, and it was because of that faith he was able to do that. And because of that confidence, he's able to encourage David, who had a pretty strong faith himself, but is probably dealing with a lot right now. I mean, he's, he's in the wilderness, he's an outcast from his people, he's living with a bunch of vagabonds, he's, you know, this is not a good place for him. And he's been promised by God, despite the fact that he's continued to wait and it's caused him trouble. And he's being pursued by a man who he's never done anything wrong to. He's never tried to hurt, tried to threaten, never shown any disloyalty to him whatsoever, other than just being a good soldier. That's all he's ever done his entire life. And his reward for it is being persecuted like he's some kind of criminal. And Jonathan, because of his great faith, is able to go out into the 
in the desert and reassure him of these things and also encourage him and say, look, I'm going to be there for you. God's going to be with you. He's going to get you through this, and I'm going to be there for you too. That is a great blessing to have a friend that looks at things that way and can also help you put things into perspective, especially when you're not in a great place. And it says that he encouraged him in God. So there is a, a physical encouragement and a, a sort of emotional encouragement from his friend coming to see him. But there's also a spiritual encouragement that is there that is being worked on David, I think, uh, possibly directly from God because of Jonathan's interaction. I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't want to say more than the scripture says, but it seems to imply that God is there with Jonathan, helping him in his encouragement. And I think that that is not at all unreasonable to assume that that is the case. So then we come to an interesting question. Is Jonathan disloyal? Because the Bible does say to honor your father and mother. That's part of the law of Moses, which Jonathan was under at the time. So is this in any way a violation of that? I mean, he is swearing allegiance to Saul, uh, to David, even though he's saying that David is going to overtake Saul and he will be king. And then all of a sudden, Jonathan is going to be David's second in command. Well, if that's the case, uh, isn't that kind of saying that you're against your dad? Actually, no. And here's why I say that. He was not disloyal to God. He did exactly what, what God would want him to do. Because God had already anointed David king, and so this doesn't mean that he was not supposed to honor his father. That doesn't mean he was supposed to not care about what happened to his dad. In fact, based on the end of the story, I think it shows that he very much does love his father. That he did respect him, and he was willing to even die for his father. So this is not a lack of love for his father, but it is an acknowledgement that he has a stronger obligation to God and also to Israel. He wants what's best for Israel, too. And he sees David as being what is best for Israel, which is the reason that he supports him. And ultimately, the truth is, I think that he's actually being loyal to Saul, too. Sometimes when we love somebody, maybe even a parent, like it was in Jonathan's case, but we see that they're wrong, we see that they're doing something that is incorrect, the best thing that we can do for them is to stand against them, to say, no, that's not okay. What you're doing is not acceptable. Doesn't mean we don't still love them. Doesn't mean we don't still respect them. But because we respect them and because we love them, we love them too much to lie to them. We love them too much to roll over and just say, no, whatever you want to do is fine. No, because we want you to have a better life, to be better people, to be more in compliance with God's will. Sometimes we have to lovingly look at a brother and say, I love you, but you're wrong. And that's exactly what Jonathan was doing here. Disagreement is not the same thing as disloyalty. Jonathan and Saul disagreed vehemently on this, and Saul was wrong because he was defying God and he was trying so hard to hold on to his own power that he refused to acknowledge the fact that God had decided something else. I genuinely think that Saul could have, the end of this story could have been that Saul sees the error of his ways and repents and begs forgiveness and steps down from the kingship and says, this is God's anointed now, you follow him. And retired. And that could have been the end of the story. And, and he and David could have been great friends. There would have been a lot less bloodshed in Israel over the civil war that happens. And that could have been the end of the story. But it didn't because Saul cared more about himself than he did about doing what God wanted. But I think that kind of mirrors God's relationship to us, doesn't it? I mean, in a lot of ways, I think it does because God loves us enough to seek out what is best for us, even when we're at our worst. 
even when Saul is so eaten up right now with anger and paranoia, Jonathan still wants what's best for his dad. He still wants his dad to, to avert face and turn around and do the right thing and repent. But he wasn't going to allow his father's bad decisions and his father's defiance of God to drag him down with it. Essentially, this is him saying, look, at a certain point, I can go no further. At a certain point, I have to make a decision and do what God wants rather than what my father wants. And that, in the long run, will actually be what's best for dad if it plays out. And God does the same thing to us. He doesn't love punishing us. He doesn't love denying things to us because we aren't ready for them or whatever else. But sometimes God has to look at us and say, look, in, in my case, Caleb, I know what you want, but what you want isn't good for you. So submit your will to mine, and I will extend my hand, and then I might be able to give you what you're asking for. Or maybe it will change your heart to where you want something else. But ultimately, God cannot make us happy apart from himself because no such thing exists. And in the same way, Jonathan could not continue to allow his father to go down this road and to go like, well, that's what dad's doing and, and he's the king, so I guess I got to go along with him. Jonathan took a stand and said, I will do what God wants. And that'll be best for me, best for David, and best for my father as well. So I guess the moral of that lesson is, when it's all said and done, if we just follow what God wants us to do, then that's what's going to be the best possible result for everybody involved, not just ourselves. And we can never let somebody else's sin or somebody else's bad decisions tempt us down the road to following them rather than following what God wants for us. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.